Hello, friends. It is me, Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is the Medicine Stories Podcast, episode 12 already. I'm excited today to bring you an episode that is really focused on herbalism. Most of you know that I am an herbalist, that many of the previous episodes have incorporated herbalism into them. I love all of the subjects that we discuss here, but I get just really excited knowing that I can offer my herbal community, my herb-inclined audience, um, some amazing content and conversations based around plant healing. So listen on. Uh, Wolf and I, in this conversation, mention a few really cool free resources. So if if you're walking the plant path, this episode is for you. If you don't know who Wolf is, I'm going to tell you in a minute, but you might know who Kiva Rose is. She's a famous herbalist. Um, Kiva and I met online almost 10 years ago through our blogs, and we, as I say to Wolf, have both gone through so many blog incarnations in that time, but back then it was, it all felt really new. You know, it was before I was on Facebook. It was, I think Facebook was a thing, but it really wasn't. MySpace really was actually how most of us were um, promoting our blogs and finding each other back then. And like we used to do this thing called blog parties where someone would choose a, um, a topic and everyone would blog on that topic and then we'd all link to each other's posts in our first paragraph. So, you know, this is how we used to share back then before Facebook, before Instagram, before Twitter. And that's when I first became aware of Kiva and Wolf and their work together. And it was always kind of mysterious, you know, who they were and <laughs> how they were living out there way off grid and a little cabin in New Mexico and how they met. These are questions I always had. And so um, Wolf and I, we get into those questions and they've shared a lot more online in the decades since then. Um, so Kiva's blog right now is Kiva's Enchantments. And they are also the founders of the Good Medicine Confluence, which you might have heard me speak about before. I'm going to be teaching three classes there in May of this year, 2018, formerly called the Traditions in Western Herbalism Conference, and it's had at least one or two other names as well. Um, so let me tell you about Wolf, and then we'll talk more about what we talk about and, and some other things before we get right into the interview today. Jesse Wolf Harden is a long acclaimed ecosopher, author, ecological and social activist, artist, musician, and historian, a champion of both human and biodiversity, as well as of nature's medicine. Wolf was a leading voice of and for the natural world for over four decades, coining the term rewilding. He has been a featured presenter at hundreds of conferences and universities and was the creator of cross-cultural eco-spiritual collaborations, appropriately called medicine shows. We talk about those. Melding his powerful spoken word with live music. Wolf is the author of over 600 published articles in over 200 different publications and over 20 books, his work earning the praises of luminaries such as Gary Snyder, Joanna Macy, Ralph Metzner, and Starhawk. Many of his books are available on the Plant Healer Bookstore page, 
while his most recent writings can be found both in the colorful quarterly Plant Healer magazine that he created with Kiva and in the free Herbaria Monthly that you can subscribe to on their website. That's at planthealer.org. We also talk more about all of this in the interview. As Terry Tempest Williams tells us, Wolf's voice inspires our passion to take us further, seeing the world whole, even holy. So I first met both Wolf and Kiva in person at the Good Medicine Confluence last year. Um, I got the opportunity to go at really the last minute and thanks to Kiva and thanks to our wonderful friend and sometimes nanny cat who was able to come with me she and she and I drove Nixie who was nine months old at the time 30 hours round trip California through Nevada through Utah to Colorado it was pretty awful it was truly one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life making that trip and then spending four nights there at Fort Lewis College in Durango with a really really feverish sad, sleepless, teething baby. It was just so hard. It was one of the hardest trips ever. Um, But I was so glad I went because the classes were just incredible. And being around a community of other plant-minded people was... I've been to a, a number of different gatherings in my time. You know, I live in Northern California. I have easy access to a lot of these things and I I don't like like festivals but I like the ones that are focused on learning and coming together on earth skills and so it was so lovely to finally meet Kiva after a decade you know of correspondence and knowing each other through writing and as Mila Prince and I talked about in episode two you you really do get to know people online sometimes and especially when you're both writers and really sharing your lives so It was just lovely and felt immediately right at home with Kiva. And then Wolf and Kiva got married at the confluence. They had been trying to plan a wedding beforehand and finally realized that like that was just going to be the easiest (laughs) and most, I think, natural opportunity for them to to speak their vows was at the confluence at the masquerade ball that happened on Saturday night. And so I was just right there front and center with Nixie and the ergo asleep on me and it was so beautiful I cried and immediately went up to both of them afterward I remember they both kissed Nixie on the top of the head which just felt like such a sweet blessing Kiva was pregnant at the time and uh, so you know I just feel very bonded to these folks and very overwhelmingly grateful for everything that they have contributed to the herbalist community and um this year, the confluence is, is coming up so soon. So I want to tell you about the three classes I'm teaching. And if you're not able to be there, which of course is most of you, and I realize this, I'm going to give you some um, some other ways you can get information about these. So my first class is called Story is Medicine, The Mythic Imagination and Meaning Making on the Healing Path. And you know, it's about what we talk about so much on this podcast. Um, the description is, Herbal healing is so much more than the sum of the plant constituents, how a person understands themselves, their place in their lineage, ecosystem and culture, their body and their ailment all play roles just as important as the plants they turn to for healing. Humans are meaning makers, and the ability to follow the thread of our personal narrative and see how it is woven into the greater human, earth, universal story is paramount to our physical and emotional health. 
finding our stories, and tapping into the mythic imagination and imaginal realms that give us deeper insight than rational thought can be just the catalyst needed to facilitate radical healing. So I just wrote an essay for their Plant Healer magazine uh, with the same title as this class, and Wolf has graciously put that together with one of his writings in a PDF, 32 pages, full color, that is up on Patreon right now for patrons of this podcast. You can access it for $2 a month and all, all the other bonus materials from previous guests and previous episodes. Um patreon.com slash medicine stories. So in in my essay, I just kind of, you know, talk about things we talk about on this podcast um, and give people sort of a uh, an outline of how to find their own medicine stories, you know, sharing my own stories and talking about sort of the areas of life and like the themes like ancestry and dreams that have a lot of meaning and wisdom and guidance to provide for us. Wolf's article is called Health and Happiness, and my favorite part from it is when he writes about the pursuit versus the cultivation of happiness. This PDF also contains more information about the Good Medicine Confluence and the plant healer mission in general. Um, It's really beautiful, and I'm very grateful that he included my essay and made it something that's available to you guys out there. Uh, it just came out in the latest online issue of Plant Healer Magazine, like a week ago or something. So we talk about Plant Healer Magazine quite a bit in this interview. And one thing we don't mention is that you can buy, so it comes out quarterly online, but at the end of the year, now on Amazon or probably through their website, you can buy a hard copy edition. And I love doing that. They come, it's this big, thick book tons of essays from tons of different herbalists on all sorts of topics. It's just, it's been so invaluable to me to have insight from so many different voices. And that's, you know, pretty current, like what's happening now, what's happening in herbalism now, what's up right now, it's just really a worthwhile thing to put your time and money into, I think is to be keeping up with Plant Healer Magazine. And they have a free um, monthly issue too called Herbaria. We also talk about that here and you can you can subscribe to that at planthealer.org. Sorry, I'm repeating myself a lot. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Nixie's teething and not sleeping well and everything I talked about in the last podcast is just up so hard right now. Thanks so much to those of you who listened and commented on my recent episode that was just me rambling into the microphone about modern parenthood and how hard it is to do it without the village. Um, I've actually never gotten that big of a response on a podcast episode yet. So I think all of us parents and mamas are feeling the need for each other so strongly right now. Um, So my second class at the Confluence is called Soul Manifesting Journeys, How to Have Safe and Meaningful Psychedelic Experiences. The word psychedelic comes from the Greek root words psyche and delos, meaning soul or mind, and to make clear or manifest. These soul-manifesting medicines are undergoing a resurgence in our culture right now, with vast potential to shift the individual and collective consciousness and to heal everything from addiction to PTSD. But for many, they are still used as party drugs. This class will delve into how these medicines work and why they're so important, 
and discuss practical steps for preparing for, undergoing, and integrating psychedelic journeys meant to facilitate growth and healing. So if you are into that, then listen to my next podcast. It'll be out, I don't know, late March with Jim Fadiman, um, who is the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Having Safe, Meaningful, and Sacred Journeys, I think is the subtitle. It is a wonderful conversation. We already had it, and I can't wait to put this out. Um, Jim, Jim is amazing, and this information is really important to me and to him to be sharing with people. You know, we want people to have these journeys, and we want them to undertake them safely and mindfully so that they can get the most healing and growth out of the experience. So stay tuned for that. We also have a really awesome Patreon offering that's going to come out along with that episode. My third class is called Witches and Wise Ones, Invoking Our Ancestors, the Cultural Heritage of European Folk Magic, and Herbs for Remembrance. And I'm teaching this with Mila Prince, who was the episode two guest of this podcast. Our description reads, you come from a long line of healers, song weavers, midwives, herbalists, dancers, artists, and wise folk. That your line survived long enough to produce you as proof of their plant genius and earth knowing. Accessing our ancestral right and rights to plant medicine. That's like ancestral R-I-G-H-T parentheses and R-I-T-E-S. To plant medicine and cultural magic practices begins with decolonizing our own heritage as witches, healers, hedge dwellers, and wise folk. Uncovering these old, resilient ways that still exist within ourselves and our cultures is the most powerful magic and medicine we need in this time. In this class, we will discuss ways to revitalize our indigenous cultural practices, no matter where our people came from, and start to reclaim our place as active participants in our own healing, tending the wild, and sacred reciprocity. So Mila and I have taught this class in person a few times. I think it's really possible that we will try to bring it into a wider audience at some point in the future. We're always talking about it, like doing a book or, you know, releasing some sort of like audio or video thing that more people can access. Um, We're both just so busy. But if you don't already follow Mila and you're interested in this kind of thing, she is on Instagram, the woman who married a bear. And her website is the woman who married a bear dot com. And she writes and shares and teaches about this stuff a lot. Um, It's more of her focus than it is mine. And she's just amazing. So go there if you're into this, but you're not going to be able to be at the confluence. Um, Okay, I think that's it. I'm not going to do an herb learning section today because there's so much herb learning in this interview and because I'm freaking tired. And I do want to quickly address like the sounds and me speaking into the mic. So if you listen to episode 10 with Katie Bowman about movement, um, I was really inspired by her books, our conversation, her podcast to be moving more when I am podcasting and not just sitting still looking at my computer, talking into the microphone. I did that for the first many shows I did. And I always was in serious pain afterward because I'm still for like an hour, an hour and a half in a chair. And so 
what I'm trying to do now is I'm holding the microphone in my hand and I'm continuing to move and stretch and uh, roll around on these, uh, the role model therapy balls that are really helping me address my pain issues. Uh, but it doesn't sound as good because now I don't have like the, the pop screen thing that you put in between your mouth and the microphone. So you can hear more of like my S's and P's and I'm figuring it out. There's got to be like something out there that I can do that I can still get the same sound quality while continuing to move my body and not being so still and not, not being in pain. So for right now, my health and well-being and not being in pain is taking precedent over, um, you not having to listen to like sounds that come out of my mouth that people have decided are awkward. So I just, I just wanted to say that because some people are uh, audiophiles and really hear things and some people don't at all. I would probably never notice that, but I know that some people do. So here we go, this interview with Wolf. Um, some of the things we talk about are the, the plant healer vision, like what him and Kiva are doing here and how it's evolved over time. Wolf tells the story of this life-changing epiphany he had while up in an avocado tree at military school when he was about age 11. It's a really beautiful metaphor for the different paths we can take in life. We talk about what rewilding means from him, from the man who coined the now ubiquitous word. We talk about folk herbalism and the infinite ways to walk the plant path. I get the a little bit of the story of the recent planned unassisted home birth of Wolf and Kiva's son, Elfin Wolfson Thorn Harden. Uh, this is something else I felt felt very connected to, having had a planned unassisted birth myself with my oldest daughter almost 12 years ago now. Um, I had midwives at the second one. I've said this before on this show, but if you would like to read some very positive home birth stories, you can go to my website, mythicmedicine.love. And on the front page there, there's a search bar and you can just type in birth and those blog posts will come up. Uh, We talk about helping plant people reclaim their own traditions, regulation, and the assault on herbalism and women from the 1700s till now, standing up for who we are as wild-hearted healers in a sterile society, how Wolf and Kiva met, and why their partnership works and is so creatively productive. The sense of enchantment that feeds those who follow their calling, and balancing a rational and magical approach to herbalism. So, thank you for being here. Uh, If you like this show, check out our Facebook group. It's called Medicine Stories. You can just search for it there. It's booming. It's so much fun for me to be there every day and see the things people are sharing it's just a respite from the rest of the internet and everything that's happening in the world right now and I'm really grateful for everyone who's there with me I also I mean oh I I know I complain about being tired and busy and then I just like keep adding more things but I started another Facebook group called herbal medicine business owners so it's it's for people who really are already like running a business or in the process of setting one up and you can find that there too and I'll ask you some questions so I can know that you're you know for real you're legit Um, but Wolf and I talk about that a bit here like regulation and just the environment that herbalists and medicine makers are trying to 
navigate right now. It's pretty hostile and it's pretty sad. I'm just waiting for Stripe to shut me down on my website like they're doing to so many other herbalists right now saying that you can't sell, quote, pseudo-pharmaceuticals. Uh, I went off on this already. I think it was in episode 10 intro. Um, but I think what a lot of people and new herbalists don't realize is that this like regulation, governmental um, hostility, <laughs> go it goes back a while. This is not a new thing. This is something herbalists have been trying to navigate for a really long time. So if you are trying to figure out the business and tax and regulatory and FDA guidelines and all that sort of stuff, then join us there, Herbal Medicine Business Owners on Facebook. Okay, let's hear from Wolf. Hello, Wolf. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast. Hello, Amber. What a pleasure. It's so nice to speak with you. It's just been such a blessing in my life coming to know both you and Kiva first online through Kiva's blog and Facebook, and then meeting both of you last year at the Good Medicine Confluence and witnessing your beautiful wedding. So I I formulate my questions a lot like you do. <laughs> I've been reading your Plant <laughs> Healer magazine for years, and your questions are paragraph length, complex things of beauty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes. And so well, it feels good to... Conversation, yeah. like, and you, you do a conversation. It's not so much an interview as a, as a dialogue and in, in, uh, in, in trying to uh, elicit with, uh, that which is hidden and bring it out for all of us. And that's a beautiful thing. I've heard nothing but good, nothing but good reports about this show since you started it. Oh, I, I love doing it. And, and I've learned from your interview questions, actually, how do, how do we elicit, like you say, how to evoke uh, the stories and the meaning that we're looking for. So my first question for you is, is um, not a question. <laughs> I, would like, I would like to ask you to please tell us about your childhood and especially about the life-changing moment you had up in an avocado tree while at military school. And your feral outlaw nomad activist young adult years, how you came into the wild land in New Mexico that you've been tending for four decades, and how plant medicine has woven itself in and out throughout your life's journey. Well, my, that is quite a story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, go run as far as you want with it. <laughs> well, starting in the present, I would say working backwards a little bit is we've ended up, much to our surprise, uh, given 100% to this plant healer movement, the tribe was basically a folk herbalism resurgence. And initially that was just to revitalize uh, the practice of plant medicine beyond the desperate attempts to, to be, feel official and accepted by the mainstream. And there was so much self-doubt and things were, at the time that we began the magazine and the event, things were beginning to become more diffuse and we wanted to re-empower and reinvigorate it but we didn't begin with that in mind whatsoever the original uh, intent was to become as connected as possible to natural selves and to the land that we're a part of and then to share that experience in ways that makes people more in connection with their own authentic beings their dreaming beings their potential their magic their spirituality and by virtue of that, to end up being better caretakers of the living planet. So both of us came to that not as uh, 
uh, herbal accolades so much as through these other entirely different venues. I mean, Kiva was a, a street person living on the streets, and I was a young runaway who, in the search for the first steps for authenticity, really was to step away from the dominant paradigm, and I had to run away from a wonderful family in order to do that, not from a bad situation. And the story you allude to, I think, is probably indicative of why we're still keeping in the language even about the Good Medicine Confluence event. We still talk about its outlaw nature and uh, and the ways in which we can differentiate and, and uh, do our own thing, personal connection to, to planet and purpose. And I think that began as a child in military school. It's important to note that unlike a lot of people, I wasn't uh, sent there because of being in trouble, but rather uh, sent there because I'd asked to, and it became my opportunity to get in trouble, which is a whole other story. But what was most beneficial about that kind of environment was that academia was greatly valued. Curiosity was encouraged. Uh, students were allowed to advance in each class as fast as they could from one grade to another without completing other classes necessarily. And if you had a particular gift, that's what they rewarded and encouraged in you. This, mind you, at the same time that the social mechanisms in a military school are all entirely around obedience and conformity, which is something I was a lot less adept at than, than uh, history and, and creative writing. And uh, the, I guess the first example of that probably was how hard I worked to be the guide on during the marches that we did every afternoon after school. And the guide on is a person, if you aren't familiar, who sits at the, uh, excuse me, walks at the very back of the, of the line as you're marching and makes sure everybody's in step and going in the correct direction. And uh, as the guide on, uh, I was able to slip away without anybody noticing and climb up what was the only tree in that uh, heavily walled um, military school yard. And it was an avocado tree. And... I was able to scamper all the way to the top before they did their next about face or a turn to where they could see behind them. And day after day after day, I was able to do that and secrete myself and watch them uh, while snickering up above at the degree of their, uh, not only their obedience, but the way in which obedience prevented them from independent thinking, actually prevented them from even being aware of my absence or aware of anything besides their feet and what they've been told to do. So indicative of the of their parents, in fact, who are doing the same for jobs or, or to fit into society on other levels. And from that tree, I could also look the other direction over this, what must have been a 12-foot wall and seemed 50-foot to a to an 11-year-old boy in a uniform. And on the other side, there was an, what may have been one of the last undeveloped lots in that part of the city and there were kids that had obviously either were too poor to go to school or had ditched school and they were running around making animal noises and jumping on each other and hooting and hollering and grab assing and and sexual innuendos and back and forth this entire fantasy world and entire mythology that was playing out right in front of me and constantly creating and developing while on the other side was this endless marching where everybody is 
putting their foot down at the exact same time. And I think that was probably the first awareness I had of the absolute stark degree to which uh, what we are as natural beings as a part of nature and what we become in order to become domestic, uh, dulled, obedient creatures in society are, uh, that, that, you know, really those are the two choices that come up for humanity as well as us as individuals in our existential, various existential and spiritual crises. And so there I am, uh, knowing that I'm probably months away from either breaking so many rules that I'll get kicked out or else running away, which is what I ended up doing. And probably it was a search of authenticity that led me not deeper into the suburbs or even into a college or a career, but rather into situations that tested my abilities, my awareness, my senses, my judgment, and my courage in order to live the dream. At that point, I didn't know what my mission was, but I was absolutely certain I had one. There was no doubt in my mind that it was not to do anything exactly as, as it has been done before, that mine wouldn't be a march, but it would be more of a, a samba, a free-form dance, a ballet, that would defy the machismo solidity and concrete nature of the society I was a part of. And I don't know if that explains. It certainly doesn't justify, but it perhaps explains why I then became uh, somebody who rode with outlaw bikers, who participated in anti-war movement, was arrested and maced, and eventually helped start the environmental group uh, Earth First, all for the same reasons. And those reasons have a lot to do with um, finding out who we really are, because no cause, whether it's sexism or racism or uh, inequality, economic inequality, none of that is in any way treatable, mendable, without us first becoming to terms with who we really are in our natural beings. And the problems we have is not that we're too wild ever, but that we are become too tame. And it's not that we become too animal-like. You'll hear somebody say, oh, those kids are playing like animals, or what a beast my husband was. But really the problem is that we're not animal enough, not spiritual enough, not wild enough. And all of those things go so well together. So I'd like to hear more about these years. This was like the 60s and 70s, I believe, when you were doing this sort of um, deep ecology traveling medicine show performances like you said starting earth first you coined the term rewilding was that around this time what what did those years look like for you well by the time uh well i, I guess i should go back from from the point of being uh, an, an activist and and general outlaw and scallywag on the west coast i started a long trek of seeking out various teachers primarily spiritual teachers, Native American, and also Anglo, and looking to each for some kind of uh, wisdom that I could plug into the, some questions could be answered and some ways of filling out the patterns and, and further understanding. In that process, I ended up coming through New Mexico in my travels and still didn't consider myself necessarily an environmentalist, but somebody who was trying to embody and encourage the natural all around me. In fact, at that point, I 
I held that nature was infallible, that everything it did was of the highest order, rather than seeing it as the endless series of uh, playful experiments that I do now. Um, I mean, there are ants, this is a bit of a, an aside, but I mean, there's ants that uh, when, when they have the cicada, the, the um, what are they, the, the mites or whatever that they have that they keep as slaves, I mean, those, those are mm. not the kinds of things that we can feel good about morally and that we shouldn't be holding those up as examples, and yet overall the patterns of nature are the demonstrations and the examples by which we can come to a more uh, real existence ourselves, and then we can make the changes in society that are necessary because we know who we truly are. And New Mexico stopped the sense that I had of needing to constantly move in order to come to those realizations. In fact, it put a fast halt on it and just really grabbed me and said, you have to be here, we need you. And I've never had that kind of a, a feeling before anywhere I'd ever been. In the most beautiful rainforests, waterfalls of the Northwest, it didn't matter. It was nothing had ever said, you have to stay, I need you. And this, this state certainly did. And I began a gallery in Taos called Mountain Unique Gallery. It was the first gallery in the state and perhaps the region that was dedicated to earth and spirituality, which is from indigenous um, spiritual systems to to the most you know, personal contemporary manifestations. But all the artwork from the jury of the paintings was indicative of that. And while engaged in, uh, in the gallery, and I was also giving performances that were spoken word, and this was quite a while before there was any any rap, it, but it was after the beat period, of course, when Kerouac and, and others had already started uh, the use of mixing music up with wordage. What I found was that um, people were coming to me from all over, not just from the immediate area in New Mexico, but from all over the United States and the world, as they read more and more of my work, were coming to find out, just as I was looking for others, for certain clues. And I would say that uh, it was a letter from the original editor of, of the Earth First Journal, when it, it was the very first year they got started, and there was probably only a dozen people involved yet. And they asked me if I would be interested in doing the covers for it, because they knew me as an artist rather than an activist at that point. And after contributing a cover to their publication, I then was talked into uh, by Bill DeVal, one of the persons who brought the concept of deep ecology to the to the United States and to the modern generations. And he convinced me to take this package of of art, of sensibility, of spirituality, of poetry, of music onto the road in order to affect people and raise consciousness for various causes, including defending the rainforest, bringing back to the, the Mexican gray wolf, uh, stopping clear cuts in the Northwest and the Calmeopsis, and it became a ten-year mission for me to to combine the these elements. And the Deep Ecology Medicine Show did just that. It opened up with an, a Native American elder doing a prayer, almost inevitably, followed with my talking about the importance, the intrinsic value of nature, and the the importance of personal responsibility. Uh, for people to look to, into themselves for, for the magic and the spark and the sense of mission. And all that 
uh, was set to music, and sometimes it would be folk people like Mary McCausland from California. There, other times it would be uh, reggae or you know heavy rock and roll or Native American drumming. It was an entire you know range really of music that, that we had behind it. And the interesting thing, a couple of the interesting things are that we always had at least three FBI agents in the audience because they were so afraid of this strange combination of uh, spiritual sensibility and activism. And um, every single time uh, we had an action that followed it. So instead of applause, we would have the people come to the National Forest headquarters and speak their hearts in, in defense of the trees or go to a newspaper uh, editor with us and, and also speak out. Or sometimes they do a blockade in front of the bulldozers and lock down with kryptonite locks and permit people from driving the bulldozers in to do the to commit their atrocities. And uh, let's see, I guess at that point I began doing a uh, column also for the Earth First Journal, and and uh, probably I would say about 180 actions and about 300 different uh, concerts along with being arrested twice and, and maced a half a dozen times so it was a, a rather exciting foray it seems like you had a really strong sense of who you were and where you were going in life from an early age uh, you said that your parents were um, loving were they also supportive of you once you started taking this radically divergent path they didn't understand it at all, but they were uh, terribly good about it. They they wanted me to be happy, and of course, my interpretation of happiness has always been fulfillment based on you know, accomplishment of good, however we see that. And so uh, they didn't put any limitations on what that would be. They were mostly worried uh, that I was going to get a, you know arrested and thrown into jail for my work rather than uh, that I wouldn't be making enough of a living or that I wouldn't fit into society. Um, I'm sorry in retrospect that I hurt them as much as I did, uh, you know, living on the streets from age 13 on because uh, they didn't deserve the worry over it because all they did was ever was to encourage and support. So, I mean, sending me to military school was because I had already been kicked out of it. Two church schools, four, four public schools, <laughs> and a couple of experimental uh, uh, schools also. So, um, no, I was entirely support, and I can't say I knew what I was going to do, but I knew I had to do something that was particular to me and that it wasn't a choice so much as a fulfillment of a calling. Mm -hmm. And how that has formed, I mean, I never would have imagined that it would have been based so heavily in the plant healer community and the plant medicine community. However, I knew it had to do with somehow assisting people to be not only more just, but also more alive, you know? Mm -hmm. Not only just doing better things, but enjoying them while they are. And that seems so sadly missing and, and still does to me. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, can you tell us what rewilding means to you? Uh, rewilding, I coined in an article in 1979, and... My original concept for it was the, rec the reclamation, really, of our wildness rather than re recreating a wildness. 
so when we grow up and when people talk about wild so often it's some under with a negative tone right it's the kids are too wild i can't hardly contain them or those are you know the wild weeds i can't spray enough pesticide on them and words like feral tend to be um you know they'll say it's a feral pack or they're feral kids they return to being vicious animals with no no reason no sensibility no critical thinking no compassion but for me and and as far as i'm concerned the reality of it is that wild is our original state that wild means rather than out of control it means self-directed rather than you know brash or loud or abrasive it means dancing to your own tune and all of the natural world is wild and therefore it's all authentic it's all acting out of its own natures but how few of us humans truly act out of our natures or constitutions how many of us are even aware of or can define our needs let alone are doing what it takes to act to meet those needs and civilization for all that we can tout it for some of the you know surgeries and stuff uh, some of the aspects of modern medicine for example are precious and we would have lost some wonderful people if we didn't have that and yet overall civilization has led to technological destruction of the planet the disempowering of individuals the you know the flatlining really of experience so because everybody struggles to fit in and in order to fit in we have to repress that calling that we're talking about you we have to not listen to the part of ourselves that's telling us what we must do to be fulfilled, to live our destinies, to to live our dreams. We have to deny those things. We have we end up in a, a bad life the same way that a lot of people end up in bad marriages, justifying it for the sake of the kids, whatever that means allegorically. Mm-hmm. You are dedicated to folk herbalism and to champion, championing an approach that is accessible and empowering. You've written that no one can tell you if you are worthy of being called an herbalist, not a professional organization or a federal agency, or even our peers with more experience than us. What is folk herbalism? And does that mean that anybody can become an herbalist? Anybody that works with herbs, uh, as Rosemary Gladstar says, is is an herbalist. Now, that does not make you a good herbalist any more than... Um, you know, going to college is going to guarantee that you're you're good at plant medicine, or you know, getting an H, an AHG certification is going to prove it. What, what you know, the quality of any person, whether uh, person's work, whether it's an artist, uh, a mother that's taking care of their children, um, you know, an er- or an herbalist, it just it's all the same. It all requires that you know we do our very best with what we know, and then how how worthy we are, how much following we get, how many people we're able to help, how much money we make, all of that becomes secondary and it hinges upon our actual acts. People come to an herbalist over and over again because the help they're given helped. You know, it worked. Some aspect of the plants that they recommended were actually a benefit. And <laughs> just... Uh, I mean, if you only know one plant and and you know what one plant does under a certain circumstance, then when you see that circumstance again with somebody you care about, you can recommend that plant for, for that particular ailment. 
And if you know a dozen plants, then you know more than the majority of the people in the United States today do about plant medicine and how to help themselves apart from that, you know, toxic medical system. So, you know, folk herbalism means that it's herbalism for the folks. That means for everybody. And some people will be really good at it. Some people will know a thousand plants but only know them in a very shallow way with no personal connection. I know a few people that have had, that only work with four or five plants, but they're plants that have so rocked their world and so rocked the world of the people they're trying to help that they use those in a very specific way that's extremely powerful over and over again. So it is, you know, I've taken to um, encouraging in herbalism what I've tried to encourage in environmentalism um, when working with with children, with, with troubled kids, but it's always the same thing, which is take it back to empowerment. Give yourself the power to act on what you know to be true, to share the gifts that you know you have, to do what you need to do to fulfill your calling and to be satisfied with your life. I think you and Kiva and I really share a a calling to encourage people to step into the world of herbalism, to not be dissuaded, to not feel unworthy or overwhelmed. And we see that there are so there are infinite ways that a person can step onto the plant path. There are infinite ways to practice herbalism and each person is going to walk that path in their own way. So I'm curious at which point in this, in this lifelong story that you're telling us, did you start to identify as an herbalist? Hmm. I I think I that's a very good question. I'm not sure that I that I do completely identify as an herbalist even today. By my own definition, I am an herbalist, and I was introduced at the first event we did by Rosemary Gladstar as a, a, a influential herbalist. But if somebody comes to me and asking for suggestions about a problem they have, even when I think I know the answer, I usually refer them to Kiva because. She knows so much more. I feel like I am a servant to the plants as I was the servant to the old growth forest that that i'm I'm turning my tears of love and of and of compassion into an opportunity for people to be empowered to heal themselves and plants is a perfect mechanism for healing, for spirituality, for magic, for reconnection to ourselves and reconnection to the planet. so I may certainly in every way a plant aficionado and a er- champion of herbalism um, and I, and technically I am an herbalist but m- my studies of plant medicine didn't even begin probably until uh, coming to New Mexico and it was from meeting uh, Michael Moore I don't know how many of our listeners are, are familiar with him he's starting to be forgotten unfortunately he's only been dead a few years um, but Michael from Air, uh, New Mexico originally and then Arizona, uh, he represented folk herbalism in, in, in incredibly, which is to say that he uh, taught out of his own experience. He didn't value research over uh, his wisdom, and, you know, of his own observations. He listened to his heart. He didn't mind being opinionated, uh, didn't care if somebody called him crusty even. And yet he gave to everybody in every way he could all the time. He was self-empowered to do all he could with what he had, and he never made any claims about his, his greatness or, or his wisdom. So my first uh, 
experience really is him giving me a copy of, of his book, Herbs of the Mountain West, and uh, at, at an Earth First rendezvous that I got him to come give a plant walk at. <laughs> and my second major connection to herbalism was through Susan Weed, whose, whose early books, although albeit written primarily for women, were uh, a huge influence on me in terms of the simplification and and so much easier to feel good about using those plants when when you can simplify so and she still to this day and so would michael be our uh, insistence that we we look to the plants for the knowledge and we trust our experience and our instincts when applying it that's got to be the heart of folk herbalism mm-hmm. um it's funny, I, I responded somewhat similarly to a question that you asked me in the written interview that we're doing right now for Plant Healer magazine. I, I really see my role in herbalism as being similar, more of maybe a bridge between people and plants, more of a voice for the plants. I Also, when people come to me, I have this specific ailment, what plant should I use? Like I'll kind of know it in my head, but I don't really feel like that's my place to be there treating people especially one-on-one but there's so much room for that out there and um, I've certainly heard of Michael Moore (laughs) a lot of my friends and my peers studied with him and loved him and this feels like a good place to let people listeners know that all of his content is free online Um, I mean that's a huge resource for people beginning their herbalism studies you can just you know google Michael Moore herbalist and find all of his classes for free online. Yeah, um, you just good. mentioned two of the so authors. Thank you, to, yeah, thank you to Donna Chesner for that too. Yeah. Okay. Yes. She was his partner. Yes. And, and she's, she's the one that decided to release it. She wants to share as much of his work as possible, uh, regardless of any profit to herself. So a big thank you to Donna. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned Susan Weed and Michael Moore as two of your main teachers. You've written before that when you first came onto your land there in New Mexico, that you had three books with you. <laughs> the Michael Moore book you just named, Susan Weed's Healing Wise, and do you remember what the third book was? Mm, tell me. Ina May's uh, Spiritual oh, Midwifery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is so Spiritual beautiful. Midwifery. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that book too. Very foundational for me stumbling upon that in my early 20s. And then I ended up having an unassisted home birth with my first daughter, Mycelia, in Mm. 2006. And so I felt very connected to you in Kiva when you announced last fall that you were going to be having an unassisted home birth with your new baby son. Um, a hundred miles from any town. So I would love to hear about your your journey to making that decision and maybe about his birth. Mm. Well, it's fresh and dear to me, so it's not hard to get me to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not intend it for it to be totally unassisted. That sounds very courageous and, and, uh, and, and beautiful, in fact. But we had hoped to have a midwife just for that off chance, you know, that small chance really that anybody has that doesn't have a, if you don't have a record of, you know, and I'm speaking just from all my recent readings, but if you, it's, it appears that if you don't have a, uh, a history of problems, particular problems, and a family history of problems, then 
the chances of it being anything but a successful birth are actually pretty low. Mm-hmm. As Kenneth Profrock pointed out, um, it's, birth itself is not a medical situation. Mm-hmm. It only becomes a medical situation in an emergency. So really what we wanted to do was cover that small chance, as I'm sure that you thought about too, the small chance that a cord could be bound around the throat in a way that I couldn't remove or that there would be hemorrhaging that no matter how much I read or what I stocked in the way of herbs, I might not be able to treat her for bleeding. Um, so for all those reasons, we had it planned out that we were trading because we don't we make very little actual cash because everything goes back into this movement or scholarships or some other thing. But we had a trade worked out and and a commitment uh, to have a midwife. And then towards the last, she got cold feet and didn't come. And uh, because you're so choice, far out. Uh, well, we're we're a hundred miles from the nearest hospital, which is a small Mormon hospital that wouldn't have been our first choice necessarily anyway. And then. Um, 250 miles to a city that really has any kind of alternative birthing um, centers or opportunities. And it's seven river crossings just to get self-service or to hit pavement from the Animus Sanctuary, the botanical sanctuary that that you spoke of. It's almost 38 years now that I've been there. And so to, if we'd have had a problem it, to actually get out and get help, uh, it would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so we, at that moment, had to make a choice if we're going to revert to a hospital, which I had just read had the higher, highest, higher rate of uh, infections and fatalities than home birth, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, or else we had to just go for it and, and uh, allowed it, of course, to be her decision. And, and she not only, uh, you know, besides being pregnant and the anxiety of that, she, she deals with autism, Asperger's and various kinds of social anxieties that would have made birthing amongst strangers uh, with, with with bright lights uh, a horrific experience. Mm-hmm. You know, instead, um, I built a fire in the wood stove. We just built a. We only have a one-room cabin, you know, with a separate kitchen. So I built this little room on the side of it so that there'd actually be a bedroom where we could have the child and and, and you know put a a, a uh, a bed for him, and uh, you know, I'm, so I'm firing up this stove that we just installed, and it's all warm in there, and glowing through the through the glass in front of the room. And I bring in the sol- solar powered rose and sit it next to her, you know. And we put on the music that she wants, and it's just it becomes this extremely intimate moment in which there's no help, but there's no interruption. There's nothing but the two of us and, and our 17-year-old daughter, Inga, um, tending to the situation so enraptured, in, in, in really, and wrapped up in it that, that the rest of the world didn't even exist. It was 16 hours of painful back pain and uh, labor, at which point uh, he, he dropped out looking absolutely fabulous. And uh, I remembered all the movies of holding them upside down and crying and we, of course, we weren't going to do that, so <laughs> spanked him. So we uh, just picked him up and held him, and I was so glad when he coughed enough at least to know his lungs were clear because he was, he was so happy to be there and be with us. Mm. And uh, every minute since then, it's uh, even if we're thinking about producing the magazine or helping, giving health advice to somebody, that, or it just doesn't matter what it is, 
uh, he's right there on our mind, even if he's he's not being carried by one of us in our arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's all intensive, <laughs> and um, and you have children, but they are quite a bit older now. How does this feel different for you? Well, <laughs> it's the first time that I was actually gave it a lot of thought before it was more, oh, how wonderful it happened, rather than should we be doing this. Um, I think it's extra powerful that we made, wrote up two pages of why it was a bad idea <laughs> and uh, couldn't write down very much of anything as to why it was a good idea. Um, <laughs> you know, at given my age, even her age, and our financial situation, where we live, you know, North Korea, I mean, <laughs> just you could go on and on, climate change, just a million reasons why it wasn't a good idea. And yet, you know, something more than just instinct. I mean, it was, certainly was instinctual, but there was something more than that because at this stage of our lives, to be so taken over with a desire to create a being means that there's something going on with this child too. There's some reason why this child exists beyond, you know, just another hominid on an overcrowded planet. <laughs> and whenever we can know that, I think that becomes an essential not sacrifice, but gift that we have to give. And I wasn't about to uh, to fight it. But what a trip to know that you picked it, you decided it, and we even picked when, because it couldn't be too close to the conference, oh. you know. <laughs> so, you know, it was, we knew we had to impregnate in February, and that was all there was to it. And so great effort was made for that. Yeah, I, I I just straight up asked Kiva at the confluence when she was pregnant if it had been a surprise because I assumed it was because of all the reasons you just named. And she was like, oh, no, you know, it was very intentional and told me that part, too, about how you had to decide to have him. So he came like in between the two confluence events of last year and this year. And I just think that is so beautiful. Both of my kids have been surprises and they were very happy ones. But I would love to have the experience of really doing it intentionally, although I'm not going to because I'm done. <laughs> got enough, huh? Yes. Um, because I, you, you and I have been emailing about this for months. It's just, it's so all-consuming. And when you're trying to run a business and you guys running all these projects that you have going, it's just a really, it's a whole lot to take care of. Yeah, most projects are already babies and, and then, then you get the... Then you have a baby crying for milk at the same time. Yeah, you're sleep but, deprived. Uh, <laughs> trying to just trying to do it all. It's you know, but if I if I thought I was doing it to replicate myself, to to yeah, have somebody to help out on, in the land, you know, all the millions of reasons that people have, mm-hmm. it it wouldn't feel quite so good. It but it's it's this mystery that I'm the compulsion was so great. Um, to bring him to birth. It was just so incredibly powerful. And so now the effort that I'm having to take is just to not have an expectation mm. because my life being a sequence of miracles on the edge of tragedies, basically, and things that are almost inexplicable that are, you know, hard for people to even believe that have happened over and over again in my life. So I have a strong sense that he's a part of that but I don't want to put that on him. That that's also going to happen to him. That he also needs to live up to a, a particular purpose. He has to discover that on his own. But truly, it has felt like something beyond um, just creating another child. And it feels like 
he's integral somehow to this vision that we have of of contributing to the health and well-being and the wildness and the love of the world. And we, as as free as we want them to be and unhindered as we want them to grow, we do weave their own mythos into their lives from birth. And so with that in mind, I would love to hear the meaning behind his beautiful name. Hmm. Well, it's... um. It's an Anglo-Saxon name, also, and uh, in a, with a slight variation, it's also a Norse name. But uh, its meaning is the basically the the guardian or defender of the elf world. And in many ways, you know, it's, when people say you're an environmentalist and they talk about my early work, it's so hard for me to frame it that way. It's not about the environment; it's about the the protection and embrace and, and championing of of life, you know, which is around us, that's, that we're a part of, that we're inseparable from. And, you know, that that uh, that's a magical world. I mean, that's a forest. That's, that's a desert. That's something outside of our walls of our city, outside of the boundaries and our fears, outside of our preconceptions. You know, the these mythical allegory of the edge of the forest. I mean, it, that is the forest, and, and those of us that live on the edge, that's where we go to find ourselves and to find our, our, our puzzles and our, our, our meanings and our callings. And so I do believe that he will, in one way or another, be an, an exemplary uh, guardian of what it means to be different, uh, what it means to be alive and vital and on the planet and caring. And so he's the elfin. He's the he's the guardian. <laughs> El- elfin, that's elfin, so sweet. Yeah. Yes. Um, you just kind of touched on on the theme of the upcoming Good Medicine Confluence, which this is a theme that you've been writing about for years. And so I would love to hear you speak about what divergence and resurgence means, and why this is the theme of this beautiful plant gathering that you've created hmm. I think we've we're calling it what it has been all along uh, more more uh, forthright more outright uh, any pretense at it being an herbal conference is over what it is is a <laughs> gathering of of natural healers and plant lovers and plant artists and plant medicine um, practitioners. Because for years all dedicated. it was called the Traditions and Western Herbalism Conference yes. for and listeners. Then, and then it. Herb Folk, we had a year of focusing it just on the mythology of plants, or primarily on the mythology of plants. And uh, and this year, we've woven all of that together. So the tr- original traditions was that Westerners, Native Americans, Europeans, have tr- traditions that are very important and just as important as anything that's come out of Ayurveda or or uh, traditional Chinese medicine, for example. Not that there's anything wrong with those, that, but that we're, we're always looking to the exotic. So the first element we put into the gathering was for people to reclaim their sense of roots, their sense of their own traditions, traditions of their people, of their region, or else just traditions that they related to fully with their heart and with their minds. And then to weave into that the herbal resurgence, which is this 
you know, to take the moribund, to take the compromise, to take the what has been a very fearful m- movement at one point of, of, of plant healers who were afraid to make waves because they wanted to fit into the mainstream, afraid to dress differently, afraid to be confused with hippies or alternative people, and wanting that acceptance so bad that they were squashing, you know, the very spirit of what herbalism has always been about, which is this very, you know, rudimentary, rooted, you know, personally empowered healing. And so the resurgence was that that it's, things will be brought back out again. They will, you know, they will arise again. That the spirit, the sensuality, the wisdom, the empowerment, that all these things would rise up again, regardless of the of acceptance by the system, regardless of how it affects income or, or whether our parents like it or anything else, that we would resurge into who we truly are. Herb folk was about adding to the gathering very strongly and deliberately the elements of mythology, of plant lore, of the, the formation of our personal stories as well as the stories of the plants. And then with the confluence, what we have is the, the bringing together. You know, that's where, the, that's where all the, the rivers come together again and meet. And so we bring together all those into one thing, and now it's a confluence. So for the first time ever, we've tried to um, pick teachers that cover the entire range from, from eco-psychology and nature therapy and forest bathing to, to yoga to kickboxing workouts, I mean, to a heavy emphasis on spirituality, on entheogens, on cannabis science, on all the ways of healing not just ourselves but the society that we live in and the planet that we are physically and spiritually a part of. So for us, the confluence is this year for the first time is the, is the coming together of all of these elements for what we hope will be the most diverse and, and active and actualized tribe yet. A lot of your writing uh, centers around this this theme that's come up a number of times in our conversation already, like empowerment from the grassroots level and retaining the spirit of folk herbalism and um, being really wary of regulation, which it wasn't a, a concept or an issue that I was really aware of, you know, at first when I was first getting into herbalism. I think a lot of people, like you spoke about, feel like, well, but I want to be recognized. I want to be certified and validated by the overculture for what I'm doing. But what what's really happening right now, and I just started a Facebook group called Herbal Medicine Uh, business owners to specifically talk about this is that people selling herbal medicines online are being shut down every day Mm -hmm. by payment processors saying that they are selling pseudo pharmaceuticals and, and all sorts of other weird shit that I'm hearing from people. Um, What can can you you speak to this and the pattern that you've always seen and why you are passionate about this? Well, it it came from my uh, you know my readings and understandings of history. I mean, uh, from from the 1700s onwards, it has been an a, an out and out assault on herbalism. The 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 bar- first barber colleges, the very first pharmacists, all of them wanted a monopoly. The first, you know they wanted they wanted all the money that comes from people's desperation about being ill, 
And so, you know, women that were the traditional community healers most often, um, they were pushed aside. They were told they it was illegal for them to practice, that women shouldn't practice, that, you know, er, that an herbalist is not as well-trained as somebody that's been to the you know, been to the schools and been admitted by the Barber and Surgeons College. And and it's gotten worse ever since. I mean, right now, Europe is so incredibly uptight and anal about who can be a phytotherapist or who can and cannot hand out any herbs. And in order to just help somebody in your own family, even, or, or in your own neighborhood, requires that you be basically an outlaw. I mean, the herbalists, the folk herbalists of of England and of much of continental Europe are indeed Robin Hoods and and and, and Mary Marianne's of of herbalism right now, and so of course that's coming to the United States, and of course it's going to attend the same wave of repression that attends any conservative uh, uh, backlash that's that's ever happened throughout history and throughout time, and to not see that coming, I mean it's it's just to not have been paying attention, it's going to be increasingly prohibitive regardless of whether it's which party is in control because it's the pharmacies it's the big money that really is calling the shots Mm -hmm. and i think standing up for regulation involves just like i'm sure the the introduction you talking about earth first early on probably makes a certain amount of people uncomfortable uh people that are spiritual or plant healers or both uh you know, aggression is not a pleasant thing. It's not something we want to do. Confrontation is something to be avoided. It's dis, you know, it's it's discomforting. It's internecine, and the reality is that the threats don't go away if we ignore them. We have to have in mind an awareness of what is going to happen in terms of regulation and repression, and already have in our minds a list of options that we can choose from so that we know personally what we're going to do, whether it's um, accommodating them to the degree possible and quitting herbalism if we can't meet the requirements, or whether it's making some adaptations but trying to stay underground and kind of, you know, not be small enough that you're not noticed, or else um, be willing to be an out-and-out outlaw and and, uh, either hidden and concealed so that you, you know you try to not be have the system aware of the work you're doing or else out and out so it's like the me too movement or or uh, refusing to get off the bus when when you're told that you have to go to the back of the bus uh, it's standing up for something that you know is right and just and not for your own sake but for the sake of every herbalist every person that will ever want to work with herbs in the future yeah, it just it just seems so clear to me that it's a bad idea that America is always overregulate, create ridiculous bureaucracies. You know, I've just my whole life is paperwork. I feel like sometimes now that I'm a homeowner and just became an mm-hmm. LLC, like I, yeah. I'm so buried in stupid paperwork as it is that I there's no way I could survive that kind of regulation in the states. No, and they, they would just as soon drive that out. But it's, it, I, I think it's important that we become more comfortable with, with being wild, with being authentic, with being ourselves, with who we are, what, what we look like, what our lineage is, what our beliefs are, and our work with the plants to be more and more honestly embodying that without the constant fear that, that uh, 
the system's going to destroy us, or that we won't be approved of, or or that you know that we won't be good enough, which is really what it boils down to. Uh, it's to stand up in any way for your authenticity or your purpose or your beliefs. That becomes part of your spirituality. That is part of your magical story, and it's part of your responsibility. Not as again, not just for yourself, but for the this, the more healthier society we're trying to create. Mm. What good is it if we if we were allowed or somehow got away with giving herbs to a few people so that they don't all end up immediately on on uh, harsh chemicals, you know, pharmaceutical drugs? Uh, it's, it's you know, but the option to that is to be empowered to do something more than just fixing our always to be empowered to be an example of what it means to be whole healthy and alive so that our children see it our friends see it so that our community becomes ever more emboldened to be on a a mission that's not just defined by are we an artist are we a herbalist are we a uh, workshop leader or you know any anything else but that it is the combination of all we are and the necessity of of visibly being that, of saying, yes, yeah, me too, I too am an herbalist, I too am an outlaw, I too am proud of to be in touch with a spirituality that's not defined by dogma. Um, one story that I've never come across in all the writings that you and Kiva have out in the world is the story of how you guys met. Will you tell me that? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, we had a mutual friend, and we were, she was, let's see, our daughter at the time was four years old, Inga, and she was going from house to house looking for house-sitting situations. And uh, one of the, my apprentices from when I had the Anima Eco-Spirituality Project on the sanctuary, and one of my apprentices that had gone off to do his own thing uh, was br- briefly involved with her and had told all these stories about the Anima teachings and about the canyon. And that basically is uh, the beginnings, you know, of our coming together. And as soon as we started writing each other, um, became obvious that we at least wanted to give it a try and, and see if this was as destined as it felt like. And she got on a plane and has been there for almost 14 years now. <laughs> wow. I and mean, I just look at everything you guys have created together. I, I'd say it's one of the most creatively productive relationships I've ever witnessed. Uh, yes, very much so. And it's, our our interests are very much the same, which is almost everything we're interested in, but also our passions and obsessions are very similar and overlap. And I, I find her constant um, excitement about things to be such a, a fuel. She can understand various aspects of the business that I have no ability for whatsoever. And she has a particular, what I call juju, that attracts uh, exactly the kinds of people that we most want to affect uh, over and over again. Yet neither of us understand it, but I doubt that I would be doing this much work with herbalism, and I, I certainly wouldn't be as effective as I am without her. She's been absolutely a, a partner in, in everything we do, and she's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. It's the same mission, but the form, the shape, the colors on the painting are, 
our thanks to the vibrancy that she's brought to, to my life. So beautiful. So Kiva, like me, has undergone many different uh, blog incarnations and used different names online. And her, her <laughs> current um, blog is Kiva's Enchantments. And you mm. have a book... What's it called with the word enchanted? The enchanted healer? Enchanted healer. Yeah. So what is this uh, emphasis on enchantment? Hmm. Even, even when I was doing the most um, seemingly confrontational activism, standing in front of those bulldozers, it was still, uh, I was enchanted. I was able to do the work because I felt not just a natural, normal, not just a normal, uh, mundane, flatline state. I felt enlivened, excited. I felt a sense of something which could never be limited by science or, or rationality or even reason, and that that was the, that was the fuel, the spark, the, that was the color on the palette. And so, it, all of the work that we do comes out of this sense of enchantment, and we believe that most of our readers. Most of the plant healer students and attendees are acting out of that same sense. Even if they have a, a, a phobia about spirituality and don't use the term, they're still not acting out of a logical attraction. Uh, they're acting out of something that little kids have, you know, when they're running around screaming, rushing for the flowers and planting their nose in them and getting their knees all dirty on the ground. It's it's. It's absolutely something that takes us over and puts us in a state that is way more excitable, way more enlivened, and way more pleasurable than, than the norm. And that kind of enchantment is what's always fed the wonder and the curiosity of people looking for the wisdom of the planet, looking to share it. And that enchantment is essential to our lives. If we're... By any chance we're able to be effective without that, then we've cheated ourselves. But in most situations, without that sense of enchantment, of story, of a personal mythology, of an actual palpable excitement and magical sensibility, that our work is hardly ever as good. You know, we can't take... We can't have the same effect on people, even with the same information, without that. But if we have that, that becomes part of the recipe of what we're giving them, not just a tincture uh, for their livers, but also this, this tincture, this metaphorical tincture of enchantment, that that is the place where we meet, that's where we know ourselves, that's where we come to know each other, that's where we find our purpose. And nowhere else can we be satisfied. No amount of sex or money or ownership of material goods, no notoriety can equal that. And that is our reward each and every day as we live our purpose, feeling the magic of that obsession, of that calling, of that excitement. Hmm. That, um, that calls to mind a a question that you wrote out for me for the other interview we're doing for your magazine. And I had thought it might be fun to throw one of your questions back at you. <laughs> so I'm going to do it. And this is, this is a paragraph length question, but it ties right into what we were just talking about. 
Even the most spiritual or magical healing modalities benefit from the inclusion of critical thinking, research analysis, and informed use of actual plants. At the same time, an emotional or intuitive sensing is of great benefit to an intellectual understanding, augmenting verifiable data and a knowledge of plant constituents and actions. Why do you think a so-called spiritual approach is so often held out as opposing or transcending science, evidence, and case histories, and even the value of utilizing actual and whole plants? What efforts do you feel you have to make to integrate and balance these in your work? Now, and a per- personally, it's no effort at all to balance them because I find them completely inextricable. Mm-hmm. I don't. I can't imagine one existing without the other, and I'm constantly feeling fed by both. Uh, science at its best is performed by people who are just as excited as that little kid, that little toddler rushing into the flowers that we were just talking about. He's just as moved by dreams as he is by conclusions from having read research papers. And so the the essentiality of critical thinking and the essentiality of enchantment are, as far as I'm concerned, uh, undeniable and constantly exist on some, in some spectrum, some degree. But to become aware of both of those and to utilize both of those in a practical way becomes really the challenge. And that's especially a challenge in a world that is increasingly polarized left brain, right brain, no such a thing. <laughs> you know, just wait, that's one way to think, but there is no dichotomy of different sides of our brain. Different parts light up, can be shown to light up uh, as they perform different activities, but it's all connected. And just as the two parts of the brain are connected, rational and the so-called non-rational or instinctive or intuitive side, those cannot be separated, neither can body be separated from mind or psychology from physical healing or bacterial effects, you know, bacterial consciousness of the microbiome and, and what we think of as our own separate, you know, mental consciousness. Uh, and certainly we cannot see ourselves as separate from or different from the earth that we stand on because we grew out of it. We go back to it as we breathe out the gases that come out of our lungs are what feed the, the trees, which in turn give us the oxygen that we need to breathe. And all of these things work not because they're in some agreement or contract, but because it's all part of the same whole, the Gaian whole. And that's the same with science and spirituality. It's the same with rationality and with enchantment. These are all parts of a spectrum that manifest from a whole that cannot be separated. So we're in a society that's constantly pointing to differences, and I, for one, appreciate differences. But what we all share in common is that we're all part of the same body, literally, spiritual, physical, chemical, you know, evolutionary body. And it's a a planetary body that's part of a galactic being. And we can take it all the way back to that. And so each and every day, everything we do should be drawing from the the very depths of our passions, drawing from our dreams, drawing from our intuition, 
listening to ancient instincts that still have has massive validity on on what we need to do in our fulfillment while critically thinking about how those things manifest how to best use them what's bullshit and and what's authentic in our lives i don't see those in any way as a you know irreconcilable differences but rather as essential parts of the whole and that's one of the things that I would like to help uh, healers and herbalists uh, embrace again. Mm. Well, I'm just going to transcribe what you just said and submit it back to you as my answer for that question as well. Because <laughs> that was beautifully put. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so tell our listeners where they can find you. I want you to please tell people about Herbaria, about the um, Plant Healer magazine, about your books, and about the confluence, and anything else you want to also. <sighs> well, the opportunities that, we're, that we offer now, the projects that we're working on, is the quarterly magazine since 2016, Plant Healer magazine, affectionately known as the magazine different so that the people that offends or excites or people that love it all of them can agree on one thing that uh, they hadn't seen anything like it before <laughs> and uh, very happy to have you be a part of that that comes out every quarter we're shifting to our uh, summer issue to july due to the conference being in may and then it's every three months after that and even though the subscription rate is fairly low on that, it's, uh, you know, being maybe just being an activist and being so much into justice issues, but I, I couldn't stand the idea that somebody might not be able to afford the magazine and therefore wasn't getting inspired, agitated, entertained, whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and therefore we brought out a supplement called Herbaria Monthly, and it was supposed to be 20 pages, and it, uh, announcements just about what about our other projects, and it's ended up being a free magazine uh, that's 60 to 70 pages long most of the time. But that's free for anybody that wants to go to the planthealer.org website and sign up for. You click and subscribe on the left-hand side of that page. Yes, it's on the splash page as you first go to planthealer.org and just put your name and email there. And that that has is now going out to over forty thousand people, which isn't a lot in, in the, a lot of demographics. That's a small concert for a heavy metal band, but <laughs> it's, it's uh, it feels like we're affecting a lot of people. And every month, it's going up greatly. And so it's I know part of that's because it is free, but it's also because we're we're reaching out beyond known herbalists to people who are just discovering different aspects of plants and healing and and uh, their personal quest, so it feels really good. Mm-hmm. And of course, once a year is the annual Plant Healer event. Forevermore, I hope, to stay called Good Medicine Confluence. It's uh, such a good name. For, for as long as we're able. I don't even know that we can do it forever, but it's it'll be its ninth anniversary this May, May 16th through 20th, in Durango, Colorado. And... Next year will be our 10th annual, so it's, we had no idea that it would even work when we started it. Um, I didn't care if it did or not in terms of, you know, I was going to do it regardless, I should say I cared, but it was, wasn't dependent on it being successful to do it, and yet it has become uh, a crucial part of a lot of people's reality and a, 
a time in in the year when they can be with other like-minded folks that are just as excited about what they do as they are and, and you know, work together on projects and to share inspirations and to, frankly, not feel quite so alone because at other conferences, a lot you're usually part of a of a, attendees. They're separate in a lot of ways from the teachers, and that's one of the things that we wanted to to erase. We wanted to be that we're all teachers with something to give, and we better damn well better all be students forever because we all have a lot to learn. And such incredible classes. I just, every time I read the course descriptions last year and this year and all the years previous when I wanted to go but couldn't, I just get so excited. Oh, me too. It's Well, <laughs> Kiva swears it's because uh, while she was pregnant, she wasn't paying enough attention that we ended up with 70 teachers. <laughs> it, will be a, it will be a handful <laughs> to, to juggle it all, but... The, I have worked every single day, uh, anywhere from 20 to 30 teacher emails mm-hmm. in order to get not just, uh, well, several things. I wanted to get teachers that are not so well-known outside of their region or are new voices, but that have an exciting passion and an exciting personal connection to plants and to healing, to the earth, to the, to, to the joy, to the land, you know, of life. And to draw them out and support them and to help them have a platform to share what they know. I mean, this year we've got a gal that was afraid to teach, Lori Kissenberry, who's had this marvelous personal transformation from a, from a ginseng poacher to somebody that really understands the, uh, you know, the needs of that species and how endangered it is and how even wildcrafting can contribute to its destruction. Now she's this advocate for Gensing, not only its use, but also its conservation. Mm -hmm. And so to, to just to get her to agree that she is truly good enough to be teaching was an effort. What we have here is people that are not, they're not only not arrogant, but they haven't been told just how amazing they truly are. And so really, if almost everybody, if not everybody, I'm certain that's coming this year to teach, represents, no matter how known or not known they are, represents an individual spark, a a certain flower, a certain look that nothing else has that nobody else has. It's not the same gift of anybody else's. And it it feels so incredible. These these are all, you are and everyone is coming, extremely special people with a very personal perspective and way of giving what's most needed on this planet today. And that feels just totally marvelous to me. Mm-hmm. And just bless your heart for seeing that in people and bringing it out. I feel incredibly grateful for for you and Kiva seeing me and giving me um, a platform and a wider audience. It's it's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about your books. I love your books, and I would like people to know more about them. Well, I would say... Um... I've had many, many books published over the years. Most of them were for the pagan community or the environmental community, or I even have books written for the history and 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 uh, cowboy and redneck communities, where I had greatly adjust the language to basically try to teach and inspire the same things. Um, the books that are in the Plant Healer bookstore that you can also access from the website, uh, those are many of them are compilations of 
writers and teachers like yourself that we brought together around certain themes in order to do the same thing for the general audience, the larger audience that we do for the people that attend the events. Then in addition to that, Kiva and I have focused on a few titles that relate more to our, what our own particular personal gifts are. Plant Healer's Path was written to help people understand what herbalism is and what it means to act as an herbalist or a plant healer in society today. How to make choices as to where to go to school, you know, what skills are needed to learn, how to start a business, whether or not you want to get certified or not, or, or, or be a, you know, a self-starter. Um, what your exact role is, because there's so many different ways you can do you know, medicine making, or you can be a, primarily a teacher, primarily a grower, or be all those things, and yet, you know, have one be more represented through your, through your voice and your teachings. And uh, Plant Healer's Path is, is really meant for that, to help people enter the world of plant medicine and find their own unique personal voice in it and place in it. Um, the Healing Train is also a very um, personal one to us. It is the articles, it has the original article rewilding, in fact, from so many years ago with some language added to make it more understandable by people in plant medicine. And it talks about gardening and sense of place and vision questing and all the things that relate to the land giving to us what we need to give to others. And then I would say the third of all of our many books that we have our hearts most in is The Enchanted Healer that you spoke of because it's a full-color book that really represents every page of it, the, the vision that we have of how magical this world is when you strip away the veneer, when you look underneath the masks, how amazing it all really is, even the most mundane even the even the things that seem ugly to us, there's just so many amazing aspects to it. So trying to feed that in every single page with chapters on reawakening our bodies and our senses, um, being willing to enjoy things and, and see herbalism as an art that gives us and other people pleasure and not feel guilty about the giving of that pleasure. Um, uh, what it means to have a spiritual connection to the earth, how plants do or do not talk to us and how to try to interpret that and not make assumptions that a plant wants us to take it, but rather to look, to listen very deeply enough to know what an entire ecosystem is speaking through us, not to us. So chapter after chapter of the Janet Healer is about the ways in which this practice can be a daily um, enchanted life for us and fulfilling purpose for us thank you so much wolf for being this incredible leader revolutionary bringer together of human beings bridger of worlds uh just you you and kiva have really changed the landscape of herbalism in the west and i'm so grateful to both of you and i am grateful to you for speaking to me today well, that was so beautiful, I hardly know what to say. I very much appreciate being a part of this. I 
and I very much appreciate the kind of people that you're attracting with, with your own special magic. It's it's the people who indeed are not just looking at the surface of things, but are delving deeper and feeling deeper and doing more with that feeling. And we really love you for that and have for a long, long time. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, Handmade Herbal Medicines, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, be sure to click the black banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, there's some cool rewards there, like exclusive content, free access to my herbal ebook and online course, and the ability to chat with me. I am a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom, and adding another project into my life with this podcast is a questionable move. But I'm also so excited about it and just praying that the Patreon will allow me the financial wiggle room to keep doing it. Another way that you can support if that's not an option is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and review the podcast. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And thank you to Marie Sue for providing the music that I use. That's Marie with two E's, S-I-O-U-X. This is from her song, Wild Eyes, one of my favorites. Uh, check out Marie Sue. Beautiful music. Thank you, and I look forward to next time. Bye. <laughs>